All right, everybody, we are getting into a good one today. This one is with my man, Jeremiah Zuo from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Jeremiah and I have been good friends since college. And um, yeah, just again, another cool guy, uh, a lot of different things, you know, his love for things like magic and his spontaneity in life. You guys are going to hear the most outrageous story about a man who, you know, started dating, really started talking, dating, got engaged, got married, all within like a three-month span. Uh, wild, wild, wild. But, you know, through it all, he is very calculated, uh, doesn't, you know, it's it's kind of the funny part. Him and I talk about this a little bit is that, like, He's not a guy who makes rash decisions, yet when it came to getting married, he just, like, he acted fast. And he has he has pretty fair logic to it, I would say, and uh, we, we get into that a little bit. So I hope you guys really enjoy this. pretty unique person um just with what your interests are the conversations we've had all that sort of stuff um and i just i think it would be a shame if people didn't get to know who you are i guess uh and i know it's it's hard because i know you're also a very humble human uh so to like shower you with these compliments i'm sure you're going okay matt like stop please but or maybe you're not. Maybe you're con- <laughs> you can. You be it becomes conceited in your old age here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we got the we got it recording right now. Just so you're aware. Um, and so I'd like to just introduce you, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so for those that are listening, uh, I am joined here by um, my friend Jeremiah Zuo. I think I probably messed up your last name. It's literally three letters, so it's. I feel like there's more possibility for like interpretation as to how you say it. Well, that's it's. I didn't know my dad's real name wasn't Steve till I was like twelve. <laughs> so, and I didn't know the correct pronunciation of my last name till I was like sixteen. So, Zuo's fine. That works. Yeah. See, that's uh, what I. I I I give up on real pronunciation a long time ago if i said it chinese people would probably laugh at me <laughs> i tried if i tried see i had a buddy i don't know if you were a prairie yet but my friend jed do you know jed i he was in my uh he was there my first year that was his last year see he has a funny last name Redhead? as well yeah and his last yeah. name is it's spelled l-i-s-t-o-e-n and so you would think it's just like listuin but it's like he pronounces it differently, but I, I think he's just like kind of quick caring about how people pronounce it because they're never going to get it right. And so I feel the same way about your last name, even though it's like really basic in the fact that it's three letters, but it's two vowels that have a lot of different ways you can pronounce them, I guess. I, I, I guess I just, I feel like, so I'm a picky eater and I, I think that it's not okay to, as a picky eater, I don't think it's okay for picky eaters to impose that. On right. other people. Right. And like 
wreck social situations. Like, I, no, we can't go there. We can't do this. Right. If you're a picky eater, you have to just shut up and take it. That's my view <laughs> as a picky eater. Right. And I'm the same way with, like, names. I It drives me nuts when people care about the pronunciation of their name. <laughs> Whatever. I live in this world, and, you know, I'm not the only person in it. I don't get to dictate how the sounds come out of your mouth. All right. That's valid. That's valid. Now, do you know it all because you're from, like, mainland China? Or My your father. Dad? Your dad. Yeah. Now, is he uh, – is your last name super popular over there or is it – No, it's it's a relatively uncommon name. It means left. It's the word for left, like the direction, like oh, left wow. hand. Oh, wow. Okay. Relatively okay. uncommon as a name. Wow. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so actually, it's funny you brought up the picky eating thing because – for those that don't know, uh, Jeremiah is from Chicago, or just outside Chicago, but it's easiest if we just say Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until we got talking that I didn't realize that Chicago had its own type of hot dog, and that it was an actual <laughs> like popular thing, and that it had to be done correctly to be considered a Chicago-style hot dog. Have you ever eaten a Chicago-style hot dog? No, um, because I'm a picky eater... I don't like all the toppings that go on a Chicago hot dog. Okay. My whole life, the, I'm pretty much like a hot dog plain. The only exceptions to that is I will – I when there's the option, I love like nacho cheese, like out of a dispenser wow. from a gas station. Okay. Like, you know, like the yeah. stuff that you would otherwise put on your chips in the plastic container. I yeah. love putting that on a hot dog or sometimes barbecue sauce of some sort. But other than that, I like my hot dogs absolutely with nothing on them. And that is the second worst sin you can do in Chicago. Right behind ketchup. Right behind ketchup. Right behind, yeah. So take note, if you go to Chicago and you only like ketchup on a hot dog, maybe don't eat a hot dog while you're there. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, that's great. So being from Chicago, uh, and I know you're, well, I don't, I don't know that we should say that you have a love for sports, but... Uh, you at least are knowledgeable of all your sports teams, I assume. Uh, I know what they are. I don't. I couldn't tell you players on on uh, teams. Any any of our teams, except for possibly the Bulls, but they change things, and I don't pay attention. So I might be wrong, and then you laugh at me. That's fair. I know, like, I know moves happened this off season. I'm aware that that is a thing. <laughs> I don't know which ones did, but. I, I know that moves happen. Well, just be prepared not to talk trash about how good the Bulls are this year because they have not made a lot of positive moves for the sake of winning in the next few years. Let's put it that way. But uh, let me ask you this. How big of a deal, and I don't know how much time you actually spend in Chicago itself, but how big of a deal has uh, the Cubs winning been uh, on the city of Chicago, like did obviously there was probably a huge roar uh, last fall when it happened, but has it carried on? Because I mean, they're still good, but yeah, yeah, there was a huge uproar when it happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was awake when it happened. Yeah. Uh, I heard, you know, I could hear from outside, you know, like people shouting and screaming, wow. and uh, um, like my neighbor is a huge, huge Cubs fan, and that yeah. man, I heard him. You know, across the way, just so excited. And then, you know, the immediate aftermath of that. But it, it's kind of like when when we won the Stanley Cup not too long ago, right. too. I didn't even know we were in the Stanley Cup finals until the day <laughs> after we won. Because then, like, there's, like, parades and stuff. Right. So, okay, now, oh, we did something important yesterday, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but then it it disap- like it disappears relatively fast. I think with anything, I mean, you could still find like t-shirts and stuff right. hanging hanging around and but other than that, I feel like it's with anything major in the eyes of the world or not major in the eyes of the world if it's only major in the eyes of your city. I mean, after uh 9/11, stuff died down pretty quick, you know. Yeah. You don't talk about it, you don't think about it. Right. Right, right. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the Chicago Cubs thing, I think, is so fascinating to me just because it was over 100 years since they had won. And we're talking about probably one of the, well, clearly one of the more premier uh, baseball franchises. And, you know, for people who are uneducated in baseball, they easily have the highest paid players um, in, in North American sports uh, on average, I believe. And it, like the Chicago Cubs, even though they hadn't won since, what was it, 1918 or 19... A little bit before that, like 12 or something? Yeah, yeah something like that. It, it, it was 108 years from last year, so yeah, somewhere around there. Anyways, fact is, it had been uh, a very long time, and yet they still stayed as this as this prominent team throughout all these years and you know there was the curse of the goat and then there's this guy steve bartman who you know <laughs> got the got the foul ball and interfered and like you know i was just reading about this they actually gave him a world series ring uh after they won last year <laughs> and so well yeah they they should have done i i'm i remember reading just briefly about how like oh maybe it's finally time to move past this and i just remember how ridiculous it was at the time i thought like this is absurd you're ruining this man's life yeah this i mean like it was it was pretty bad see and fanaticism is an interesting thing because it happens in the weirdest ways when teams are all of a sudden good or the they're storied as these great teams especially from working class cities um, that are that are known as like blue collar cities. Like I don't know if Chicago is really a blue collar city or not. I don't know enough about like their their economy and stuff. But I think of places like Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, like those places. They've always like grown up with these really like rough and tumble teams, and you know their fan base is is very. They come off as very tough, and uh, and so when things don't go their way or they get so close and then fail and you know. There's these, um, you know, and then there's the curse in Chicago and stuff, right? And so it's like you so badly want to win. And then, you know, when you lose, you erupt out of emotion in such a silly way. Uh, a, a friend of mine and I, were we were just having coffee, which is why I was late. And uh, we were talking about the wildfires. And then we were discussing other natural disasters. His brother actually lives in like the Tampa region. Oh, my wife's family all in Tampa. Yeah, so they're obviously dealing with, you know, the hurricane coming through. And uh, he was talking about, like, looting down there. And I said, you know, how crazy is it that not only are you in probably the worst situation of your life, but now you have to worry about people breaking into your home or your stores or whatever it might be to steal everything that you possibly own. Yeah. And we got discussing uh, Vancouver Canucks fans from 2011 when they lost to the Boston Bruins and they went and rioted in their own city and just like destroyed the place. It's like, how stupid are we as humans 
that like we revert to this like primal mentality of destroying our own city because we lost in sports. <laughs> I have a funny uh, looting story, or rather, a not looting story. Um, th- so uh, it was in 2012. We had uh, I don't remember what storm, some hurricane or something that hit Philadelphia, and I was in Philadelphia at the time. Right. Uh, and I had just moved there, and I guess I looked really suspicious, and there was a lot of looting going on in my area because I came out of my place. And I was walking down the street, and a police officer saw me come out, and he, he thought I might be a looter. So he, he came over to me, and he asked the, you know who I was and why I was coming out of the house. Did I live there? I was like, yeah, I lived there. And he's like, can I see some ID? And I was like, well, I only had my Illinois driver's license. I didn't have anything that had like that address on it. I had just moved there. Right. I was like, I, I said I just moved there. I'm a student at Westminster down the road. And he's like, oh, do you have your ID? And I was like, sure. And then I was like, oh, wait, I lost that yesterday. And then I was like, uh, and he's like, well, do you have any like textbooks? I was like, yeah, I have, I have books, I guess. And then he's like, anything with like the words Westminster written on it? Like, well, no, like that's not how textbooks work. Like your textbooks don't say the name of school. And then like I was right. digging for my bag for like proof of that I'm not a looter. And he says, well, what do you have there in your bag? Like thinking maybe I had some, you know, contraband. <laughs> stolen property and I said I've got a Hebrew dictionary and a Hebrew Old Testament and he said you could go <laughs> yeah, a guy who's studying Hebrew clearly couldn't be a looter or if you stole that like good luck <laughs> yeah exactly enjoy trying to resell that like all the power <laughs> to you I guess <laughs> oh man no see and that's like it's just crazy that that's how we like fall in humanity and I mean the other part of it we were talking about, I guess from what I've heard through news and other podcasts that I've listened to, I guess in the situation that's going on in uh, Houston, they've had very little in regards to looting. People have been pretty tame, I guess, and, and been pretty respectful based on the fact that like half the city's underwater. And so, Can't mess around so, in Texas either, man. Well, that's the other part of it too, right? <laughs> you don't know who's got a gun waiting for you at the front door, you know? The, I feel like the laws are a little more liberal when it comes to self-defense and shooting people <laughs> in Texas, of all places. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Texas, do you, I, I, I always thought it was funny. There was a, a television show a few years back. It didn't last long. It's called Revolution. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Nope. The, the premise was that some event happened that called, caused all electricity to no longer work. So nothing, like we lost everything that had, was powered on electricity. So it was kind of like going back to the Stone Age type yeah. or, you know, pre, pre-industrial pre world. Yeah. And so it it was, it takes place like a year or so after that event happened. And like, and the way like the U.S. has kind of parsed out is like there's this one area, like the Northeast is kind of ruled by this one militia. <laughs> then like the Southeast is kind of ruled by this other like country that's divided, like all like the western states has just become like abandoned badlands and then there's just like texas that texas. still has the same borders and it's just still texas <laughs> oh, see texas is built i think to be like prepared for that martial law kind of mentality like i feel like i mean i've never been to texas but from what i've heard of texas it sounds like they are still very prepared for uh the wild west to still take place <laughs> so I mean, all the power to the... I mean, Texas was a republic for however long. Like, I feel like they... I'm, 
I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure were they not one of the last states to really join the the union or whatever? I don't know. I'm terrible at history of all sorts. Because I swear they had their own like money system, and you know they did not want to be part of the United States if they didn't have to be. Like they would live amongst them, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they weren't like they're one of the last ones to join just because they enjoyed doing their own way of life. But I mean, again, I could be wrong. I'm I'm from Canada, so <laughs> I I know a bit of American history, but definitely not enough about uh, the states and and their formation and everything. But uh yeah man let's let's dive into this so like i've said on previous uh, i hate calling them episodes but i don't know what else to call them uh but previous previous podcasts uh you know i am just kind of interviewing these fascinating people in my life and you know jeremiah you are definitely one of them and uh i i just think one i've never met a guy from chicago two uh i've Never met anyone who's really into like, I don't know, are you offended by the word magic or is it, uh, you're an illusionist? Are you like, what, what word best describes that? No, you know, everyone asks that and a lot of people are really particular within the field, but, and there are some technical distinctions, but I don't care. It's, it's, It's like with my last name. I think if you make a big deal out of it, you're kind of a loser. Right. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. See, and I'm sure there are those that are like really strong into it would not be prefer to be called a magician or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so, I, I mean, I just don't want to be offensive or anything like that. I think, I think there's, there's, there's like this artistic, um, there's this drive to be viewed as a legitimate art form. And so Sometimes you want to dissociate, even if it's the best word. Like magic and magician are the simplest, best words. Right. But they. here's the thing, and I've heard this said, and it's really true. If you see a bad actor, you're like, man, that actor stunk. If you see a bad violin player, you're like, man, that violin player stunk. If you see a bad magician, you're like, man, all magic stinks. Right. <laughs> and so, like, there's kind of this magic is like right above mime and right below clown and like the public eye of <laughs> entertainment. So I think a lot of magicians want to dissociate from the word just so it doesn't come with baggage. Like when right. you tell someone I'm a magician, you you want to set the terms for how someone's going to evaluate you before they, with no words, you don't want labels deciding how they're going to think of what you do. You want to show them something and let them decide. Right. Well, so some I- magicians try to avoid words that they think have a negative image so like they try to be i'm a sleight of hand artist or i'm you know like i'm a car technician it's like well those are all true but that just sounds pretentious to me well and it it is part of like really getting into the field right you're going to get more of that kind of pretentiousness that that comes with it um i guess like as funny as it sounds probably a lot of people's first interaction with magic is seeing that kind of hokey you know top hat with the little wand with the little white tip on the end and you know, either a rabbit's coming out of the hat or they're pulling a cloth out their sleeve for, you know, a hundred yards of, of cloth or whatever and it's changing colors or, you know, you see some silly, goofy trick and, I mean, I can't think of any kid I know who didn't have, like, a magic set when they were kids um, and weren't in some way enamored with the idea of magic. I mean, I even had it where you had, like, the fake plastic handcuffs that had the little thing on the side that popped them open clearly or 
uh, I had a rope that could go stiff or soft and, you know, like you have these silly little ones that are, you know, encouraged to get kids into it, but clearly it gets very advanced. Um, and you yourself are like, I don't know where you, you match up in the realm of, you know, magicians and, and illusionists and stuff like that. I know from what we've talked about, and if you're cool talking a little bit about it, um, you again, I, I don't want to be, you know, offensive or, you know, build you up to be this, you know, guy who should have a show in Vegas or anything. But um, I know that you've shared with me, you know, you have done videos and have um, developed tricks. Uh, and so if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about like, where, where did this kind of um, passion for magic come from? And, and how did it develop? Yeah, yeah, it's um and it's funny that this is the first thing uh first thing that comes to mind because like really when it comes to the th- like I would say there are three loci for like how I define myself as a person and magic is like not even close to being one of those three. Really? Like I I don't think about it at all anymore. So what what at one point was definitely passion for magic in my life mm-hmm. has now I would now describe it as like uh, mild indifference slash occasional delight. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But like, like it didn't, it didn't like even come up when I was courting, dating, whatever word you, word you want to use my wife. Like, yeah. I think I mentioned that I had done magic like once and it never came up again until like three months <laughs> after. <it was. laughs> like, uh, uh, I, but so I started in magic the same way like you mentioned i got a magic set when i was five now i don't know how or why but i'm told i must have saw something on tv i'm told i had been asking for that like since i was like three years old that i was like i want to i want to learn magic or i want to do that and so my parents got me this really really big magic set marshall brodeen i still remember a very famous uh chicago guy actually he did a lot of like marketable prod uh you know products for kids and stuff like that and I Marshall Brodeen magic set, and I just I never stopped. You know, everyone got a set and did a little, and I just never stopped. I I used to check out books from the library, like just the local library, anything that I could find on magic. Uh, that was my favorite. That was like literally the only thing I checked out from the library. I'd go to the library, I'd look at their magic section, take the stuff home. Um, I learned to do uh, quite a lot of it of technical card work from books, mm-hmm. and that's not always the easiest place to start. Like I learned to spring cards, you know, or shoot them from hand to hand. Yeah. I learned that from a book when I was nine. You know? <laughs> Which is incredible but, to think that at the age of nine, you're doing something that, I mean, it's just even, even that, right. It's, but I think that's, what's cool about magic is you see these like just subtle physical movements and you're like, man, how does he do that? Yeah. And then, so one of the things that's interesting to me is, and especially as I reflect on it now, there are very, very few magicians alive today who are magicians of old. And what I mean by that is not too long ago, even, I mean, I'm not talking about 1800s, 1700s. I'm saying within the last hundred years, magicians used to be Though they very few of them claim to have actual supernatural powers, they used to be this mysterious 
thing. They they catered they they uh, organized their entire life around their magic identity, and rather than just being someone who did tricks, they did. Their whole persona was centered around. I'm this person with this deep body of secret knowledge that you do not have. And even uh, what they did, uh, I'm starting to mumble. So the, the, one of the only living people who does this today is Darren Brown. I don't know if you know who Darren Brown is. He's, Never heard of him. He, he is a very, very famous UK uh, celebrity. He's a, like in the UK, he's the type of person that people on the street would know. Like, um, Are you familiar with the – like the way we're familiar with a guy like David Blaine or like exactly. Chris Angel, those sort of guys. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Although Darren Brown's celebrity relative to UK surpassed those guys in the US. Um, you know the you know the BBC series Sherlock. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Excellent excellent TV. Well, Darren Brown did a cameo where after Sherlock died and they were like or faked his death, the okay. one police officer when he was in the very first episode trying to like suggest his theories for how. Sherlock faked his death. He's like, maybe Darren Brown helped him by hypnotizing people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. But so the thing is, not only do magicians fake things, like, right? Like everyone knows I can't really cut someone in half and put them back together. But a huge part of magic is what we call not strictly impossible things, but demonstrations of skill. Like, watch me memorize everyone in the audience's name, or uh, let me demonstrate how a card, you know, mechanic would cheat at a game. 99% of that, like I'm telling you a big secret here, 99% of that is all fake. Like, even the stuff that is not magical, but we're saying here is a skill set, there's obvi- there is a skill involved, but I'm not doing what I'm saying I'm doing. Darren Brown is a well-known mentalist and you know, all these things, but a huge, huge percentage of what he claims to be able to do, which the public assumes that he could do just because he's a master of psychology and everything. Like he can't, it's, it's fake even in that sense, but very few people today maintain that kind of whole bodied persona where like your whole life is in one sense, your whole public persona is fake. Most magicians nowadays, their public persona is not fake. Magic's just something they do. But back in the day, your whole life was a constant act. It was a constant act of constant, you know, fake public persona. Right. Which, uh, in one sense, I I, I still find uh, interesting. Like, oh man, like yeah, wow, what Darren Brown does is pretty, pretty impressive. But uh, on the other hand, I'm definitely uh, like, oh man, I I do card tricks sometimes. Like that's yeah. about it. But even still, like the card tricks I do. It's it's the same deal where I'm I'm explaining something or I'm demonstrating skill. Ninety nine percent of the skills that I'm demonstrating I can't do for real. I have just found ways of creating the illusion that I have that skill. If I, right. if, I, if, I if I'm gonna sit down and say, watch here, you shuffle a deck. I'm gonna now show you how a card cheater might be able to deal himself a winning hand of cards. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not actually doing what I'm claiming to do. I have some way that I'm tricking you into thinking I'm, it's still skill involved, but it's not right. the skill that I'm claiming that I have, right? right. So I'm faking the skill that I'm claiming that I have with other skills. Okay, okay. Uh, but so I, you know, so a lot of magic still fascinates me. I still like watching good magic. I still recommend watching good magic to people. It, most people haven't seen good magic in their lives. It's just, it's a fact. And furthermore, what you can see on TV, 
even when it is good, and now and I hate a lot of TV magic. The majority of TV magic I hate because by and large, and this is understandable, they are making use of the venue, meaning they are making use of the fact that they're on TV. Right. They're going to do things that you could not see live. But I don't, as a magician, I don't enjoy that. You know, right. I think, like, I, I want to see what I could see if I were there. And if I can't see this if I were there, you know, th- th- to me it's cheating a little bit. The, right. There's a huge debate in magic about that, whether it's okay to, you know, use a camera trick here or there. Like, there's a huge debate about whether what's licit or not for doing magic on TV. And I fall on the side of, like, I think it should look, it, it should just be like, a documentary. It should look like what I would see if I were there. But right. 99% of TV magic is not. It is augmented. It is helped by the fact that you are watching it on a screen. And I hate that. And so most people don't actually get to see the kind of stuff that I would do in their life. And I do recommend, you know, seeing a good sleight of hand magician, someone who could really handle cards well. They're they're entertaining and the best of them are are great uh, are a great form of of entertainment. So I do still love uh, to occasionally watch magic. I don't really study anymore. I don't keep up on who's doing what. I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends in magic, so they'll email me and tell me stuff, but I haven't bought magic in forever. I haven't bought a book or uh, right. stuff still comes out that I'm like, man, that sounds really interesting, but not enough to spend money anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time in the magic world yeah. at all. Uh, yeah. and, and I, and I started to grow distasteful of it. You know, when I was, uh, when I was younger, one of my absolute favorite magicians, his man named Gary Kurtz, he stopped doing magic and became a mentalist, mm-hmm. uh, which really, really is a subset of magic depending on the mentalist you're talking to. But he wanted his persona to be like borderline real psychic type deal mentalist he wanted to be kind of like darren brownish gary kurtz is actually canadian he's a canadian magician and uh so he completely disassociated himself with his magic past because he didn't want that connection he didn't want it to be like oh like you just learned card trick like he wanted to be like more real in his audience's mind so like he totally disavowed like being involved in magic and kind of just like pretended like that didn't exist as far as his public persona was concerned yeah and and he stopped like participating in magic conventions. He stopped associating with magic magicians. And I remember at the time thinking, how could you do that? Like magic was such a big part of my life. I was like, how could you just stop? I was like, I don't think I ever could do that. Like I love magic so much. I don't think I could ever, ever pull myself out of that world. And now it's like, it's, I find the world distasteful. I find magicians more often than not, not fun to be around. I don't like people who enjoy it that much. For me, it's always like, settle down, man. It's just card tricks. <laughs> See, and I'm that sucker who watches America's Got Talent every year, and I'm just like <laughs> blown away by the magicians. I'm like, oh my goodness, how do they do that? And I won't <laughs> lie, some... I think of you literally every time I see one of these magic acts, and I think, man, I bet you Jeremiah knows exactly what this guy's doing. They've had some really good guys on TV of late. Like, Magic has had some relatively good exposure. There's a television show called Fool Us, Penn and Teller. Oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's, it's a show where, like, they have magicians come on and they do an act and try to fool Penn and Teller. I mean, like, half the acts aren't really trying to fool Penn and Teller. But, like, that's the format of the show. Right. Like, the idea is, like, we're coming on to fool Penn and Teller. And uh, that's good Magic TV. I like okay. that's. I think that's the best magic TV I've seen, which is not an endorsement. I think a ton of the acts that show up suck, but like as far as 
like magic TV, like you're seeing a like a real act. You know, you're not getting a, a TV magicified version. Right. Like even America's Got Talent, like some of that stuff is so fake, is like so rigged. Right. Right. And I'm like, wow, like the producers like are clearly like keen on like, oh, let's. You know, but you're making good TV. But a lot of a lot of acts I've seen, I don't watch America's Got Talent. But like I said, my friends will send me stuff, and I've had friends who've been on. So like, the, you know, of course I'm gonna get the YouTube link saying, "Hey, watch my set," or whatever. And absolutely. And uh, a lot of the stuff I've seen has been good. So like, uh, Magic has been getting a lot of good exposure recently. You know, I love uh, Pip the Magic Dragon. I don't know if you saw yeah. him. I, yeah. You know. <laughs> what a goofy guy! But yeah, that's exactly it. Like. I mean, it's tricky because you're right. Some of this stuff is clearly terrible. Um, and when you use an example like, you know, fooling Penn and Teller, I'm sure that they have to stack acts that are fake or aren't good because what good of a show or how good can this show be if Penn and Teller can't, you know, figure out a single act or, you know, because you have to build up their persona as well as being these guys who who can really discern and distinguish what people are doing. Yeah. Which is interesting because so that show started as a British show. Mm-hmm. Its first season was it was filmed in England and then they brought it over okay. and it, they clearly had a totally different standard of what was okay magic-wise or at least the producers or whoever was involved behind it because Penn and Teller are are known in the magic world for not being shy about secrets. They right. don't they don't care about that. And like some to like to 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 the anger of a lot in the magic community, but like in the British version of the show, when it came time for Penn and Teller to like say if they knew how that like they would just straight up say the exact method, like right. mean like no no hidden. And on the American version of the show, they speak in code. They speak in code to the person on stage, so the person on stage will know if they know, but like the audience won't understand. Oh, which I thought okay. was I thought was an interesting stage. Or, or cha- an interesting change. It's like, oh, like whoever's behind the American version is like, let's keep this a little more mysterious. Like, Yeah, they probably also don't want to destroy people's careers because yeah. I'm sure that some of these guys make money off of these moves that they're pulling, right? Well, yeah, but – and I think I'm like more on the Penn & Teller side where it, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's not going to be widely exposed enough that it's going to cause problems and uh, – and the 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 method is is such a small part when it comes down to it, but uh, but like I said, a few very few very few acts on that show like that's the premise. The premise is fool Penn and Teller, but very few of the acts on there are actively trying to fool Penn and Teller. Right. They're just going on like, here's my best act. I want to get ten minutes on TV with my best stuff for right. recognition. You know, who cares whether it fools them or not? Right, right. Yeah, it, I mean, it it helps self promote and. I mean, especially if you can, you know, fool them, uh, it, it probably makes you just that much greater in the magic community as well as for, you know, notoriety amongst people who might be interested in coming to watch you. It, it, it's something it's something promotional-wise. In the magic community, it means nothing because we all watch this and we know. We know when Penn and Teller are being nice. Right. We know when they're – like there's been a lot of magicians on there. That are that are like living legends in the field. Mm-hmm. That Penn and Teller say you fooled us just purely out of respect. That right. they're lying, they're lying, like or not. I mean, not lying. Sometimes they're a little more, but they weren't fooled. They're right. just they're just giving the nod to the person in the field that they need to give the nod to. Right, right. No, that's fair. Okay, now before we move on from magic, because uh, there are a couple other things that I want to touch base with you about. But can you please tell the story 
about when you did magic for these Chinese government officials or whatever they were. <laughs> sure. Because so, I, I feel like I've tried explaining this to people, but I swear I get it wrong every time. So I so the, the way that I tell this story is framed as the first time I've ever had a drink. All right, so that's what the story is. It's the first time I've ever had a drink. Because um, I don't drink. Uh, and uh, not out of any... Uh, are you still there? Yeah. Your sound sounds... All right. Not out of any uh, belief that drinking is inherently wrong. I'm just a very picky eater. And alcohol tastes terrible to me. And I'm, I've never understood the idea of an acquired taste. Like, if it takes me practice to learn to like something, no. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm, I'm not down for that. And, and since there are a bunch of negative effects associated with alcohol, why learn? So I, I don't drink. Right. And uh, at one time I was in China. Now, actually, I was there for a, a big magic event. It was, it was in uh, Beijing in 2009. And I was going for a magic event. But my father uh, also went with my younger brother and a friend of ours who, uh, you know, wanted to go. So they were traveling around in China while I was at this event. And after my event ended, we then traveled for another like two weeks or something together, the four of us. And everywhere we went, I have no idea what my dad does. Like, I really don't know. We always joke, like, is he a spy? Is he an arms dealer? I don't really know. He seems to have his hand in a little bit of everything. But everywhere we went, he knew someone, and they always seemed to be important. Uh, but this really like came to uh, you know its fullest expression when we were going to this coastal town, and we hadn't booked a place ahead of time. Like we hadn't booked a hotel, and it was you know like July, and it was a, like a really popular tourist time, so we couldn't find anything. Like we didn't have a place to stay, and but like we had our train tickets, we were gonna be leaving tomorrow, but we still didn't have a place to stay. And my dad's like, don't worry, I'll figure something out. And we ended up staying on this compound for government officials and their families, like armed security at the gates and all around the place. And like, so all important people, it's like, I don't know how my dad knew, you know, or who he knew <laughs> to get in, but we, and, and so side note, throughout the whole trip, every city we went to, we'd meet up with some of my dad's friends. Every single one of them would invariably ask, which is the son that does magic? And I would have to do a little demonstration. So we're, we get to this place where we get invited to this, you know, like the compound had, you know, like restaurants in the compound. And we get invited to the restaurant and we're eating, you know, like kings. Like they literally brought out a plate of like 150 crab, you know, like just stacked up in a huge pyramid. And sure enough, you know, like we were eating with two of my dad's friends. And they're like, which is the son that does magic? So I did a little bit of magic for them. And then a guy came by, and apparently he was, like, the manager or the supervisor of, like, the whole compound. I don't know what he did, but he was some kind of in-charge person. And my dad's two friends who were eating with us called him over. And they're like, oh, you have to see this, you have to see this. And they made me do some magic for him. And I did, you know, just, like, I don't know, 30 seconds, something for him with cards. And he was like, this is great. I have people who have to see you. And he's like, please come, please come. And so he, he takes me away from my dad, away from my brother, away from my friend. And now here's the other thing. I don't speak Chinese. I am t totally dependent this whole time on my father to translate <laughs> and survive. I can understand a little. I can like say, hey, I'm full. Stop beating me. Where's the bathroom? But that's, that's about it. Um, 
And so this guy takes me away, and we go. I don't remember how long, but we we go to a different building, and we go upstairs, and we go into this huge private banquet room. And it's just one square room, and in the center is a giant table around. There's probably like twenty or thirty people around this table, like adults, kids, some sort of just you know get together. I have no idea who these people were, but in each corner of the room was an armed guard with like a huge gun. And like just standing there. So these are clearly important people, but I have no idea who they were. And the guy's like, you have to show them some magic. And and I said, sure. I was nervous because I don't speak Chinese. And a lot of my material is very verbal. Like I talk a lot. So I was like, how's this going to work? But fortunately, one of the people there like spoke really good English. And he translated for me. And I did a little bit for them. I don't really even remember what I did. But at the end, he was like, that was great. That was wonderful. We'd love to toast in your honor. And I said, okay, fine. And then he said, what would you like to drink? And that question threw me. And if I had only been a little faster, I would have just said beer. Because in my mind, like, oh, toast means other people drink. That doesn't mean I have to drink. Like, they raise glasses. But when he said, what would you like to drink, the, the two seconds it took my brain to process, oh, I have to drink something, really screwed me over because I should have said beer, but I was slightly stunned. And then he immediately said, oh, it's okay. I'll pick something for you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they bring me this glass. Now, it's not, it wasn't a shot glass. It was bigger than that. So more like, I, I guess, like a whiskey tumbler yep. or, or whatever. So not a shot, a bigger drink than that, but not like a glass of beer. Yep. And I should, I should be flattered. I, I was told after the fact that what I drank, just what I drank, just the, the cup that they gave me was $90, that glass. Okay. And, uh, but so he get, gives me this kind of, you know, like hard liquor, like a 40% alcohol, you know, mm -hmm. so I guess comparable to like a vodka. And I've never drank in my entire life. And they hand me this glass, and I'm looking at it going, I have to drink. And then I'm thinking, like, I don't want to insult these people. What if they make me disappear? Like, you seem like very important people, and I'm alone in a room with them. I'm so, also in a country with one point whatever billion people. I can disappear real fast. So they they cheers in my honor, and I drank it down, and I felt miserable. Like I immediately shut up. The guy like walked me back to my my dad and brother and friend, and they're like, "Hey, how'd it go? What happened?" And I was like, "I don't want to talk. I just want to go back to our room." And I just spent the rest of the night trying not to vomit. Like, I was miserable physically for the... Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. So that was my first drinking story. Yeah, dude. I love that story because I just... I cannot imagine being in a room full of high officials in, obviously, a well-known, like, communist country, uh, surrounded by armed guards <laughs> and not knowing the language. Because, yeah, you don't know if you're going to offend someone or... Uh, if what if your performance isn't good enough? Like who knows, right? Uh, yep. There's there's so many variables. I just think that it's such a fascinating story. I love it, and the fact that yeah, man, you got toasted to for doing magic in a country that. I mean, I'm sure they. I don't know how many of them probably brag and tell tell this story themselves, but uh, I'd like to think that that they tell their children and grandchildren <laughs> about about your magic act. <laughs> So, okay, so magic is a big part. You're also a big academic. Um, but I think what I love most about your life, and I've tried to explain this to people ever since, is the story of how you got married and now have three children. Yes. So when I, 
when I mentioned that before, like there are really three like loci to my to my personal identity. Yeah. The first is my Christian faith. The second is my career as an academic. These aren't in necessarily in order. Yeah. And the third is my family life, like being a husband and father. Yeah. And the the story of that. People ask me to tell it a lot, which is funny because my wife and I do not consider ourselves particularly spontaneous or adventurous people, except for the one thing that, like, yeah, you know. Yeah, except like, that you got, like, engaged and married in a very short span of yeah, time, sir. Ex- except for the one, like, the, the beginning, except for the beginning of our relationship, everything else about us is boring. But that makes it seem like we're interesting people, but we're not. We don't like we like to stay home and watch Netflix and eat at the same restaurant every single time because we're too afraid to try a new one. Like that's the way we are, except for the beginning. Oh yeah, but the beginning is so good. So I will tell this because I do like telling it. Because okay, so there are a lot of things like when you're a Christian, there are a lot of beliefs that you have that are like very secondary, but that tend to be soapbox issues. Like if you're a homeschool family, that tends to be like a soapbox issue. You like to like evangelize for homeschooling, you know, um, relatively speaking, this like dating is one of my soapbox issues where it's like, this isn't important, but if you're going to listen to me rant about it, I could rant a long time. (laughs) So, um, my wife and I met online, uh, and, uh, we met on this like reformed dating website. Uh, she was in Uganda at the time. She was in Africa working as a missionary. And when she moved to Africa, every, and I have to tell her side since she's not here. When she moved to Africa, everyone kind of told her, like, well, no one's going to marry you now. Like, <laughs> well, how are you going to get married as a single person? You're like, you know, going to Africa. Well, then she's like, oh, well, maybe I'll marry a Ugandan. But then she started adopting as a single mother. So our first daughter, my wife started adopting and there's kind of a, in Uganda, a stigma against raising someone else's child. So it's kind of like a Cinderella situation where like, if your brother died and you took in their kid, you wouldn't be very nice to them. You know, it's, you, you, you just did. So once my wife was adopting, that kind of like ruled out getting married to a Ugandan. Cause like most Ugandans wouldn't want to raise someone else's child. Right. Wow. That's How not crazy. Is that, eh? Yeah. So, but at one point, you know, she met someone, this, this friend of hers who said, you should try online dating, like a friend from like someone also from America who was over there doing work and said, you should try online dating. So she was showing my wife this website, like here, check out this website. You might like my mom met her husband on this website. And so she was showing my wife this website. It was called Sovereign Grace Singles. And she was, so they like looking through like her age range. And at the very end of the list was my profile. Yeah. Now, at the time, my wife knew about my profile before I did because a friend of mine made that profile. <laughs> so my wife actually saw that profile before I saw that profile. Which um, And the timing is literally like within like 12 hours. My friend saw that profile and or made that profile, and within 12 hours my, was when my wife saw it. So it was like really, really like chance timing. So – my friend had uh, made a profile for me on this dating site and uh, I came home uh, and he was like, Hey, check out what I did. Like he had sat at my computer and you know, used whatever he could find to make a profile for me. I was like, what are you doing? Take that down. Stop it. And he said, Hey man, don't you want to get married? I said, sure. And he said, 
you're not opposed to online dating, right? I was like, not in theory. He's like, then what's the problem? And then uh, I was like, well, I'm, I, I like to think of myself as, you know, a rigorous thinker. And I couldn't think of a, like an actual good reason not to consider online dating. So I said, fair enough. Uh, I'll try. I'll look at this. I promise. I will. I will sit down because it was literally finals week of my first semester of seminary. And I said, I'll look at this. You know, it's December like 7th or 8th. I said, I promise I will sit down maybe after the semester over or better yet, summer. Like when summer comes, I will sit down and I will actively try using this. And he, he was like, okay, cool. And he's like, see, you know, it's like this. He just showed me how it works. Like he was like pulled up the website. And my wife had just signed up like not, you know, like hours, hours before I was looking at this. And we were like the last two people to sign up. Like my friend had made the profile, then she had signed up. And so like on the website, like our faces were next to each other under like new like people. Like on the side they had like a little list of new people. And so like he clicked, my friend was showing me, he clicked her profile randomly like, hey, see, like you just click on a profile and you read it and you can message the person if you're interested. And so I started reading my wife's profile just, you know, out of, okay, let me, let's see what this, this website's about. Yeah. And uh, she was adopting and I had always wanted to adopt and I had actually only recently decided even if I never get married, I still think I want to adopt. I'd wrestled with that a long time, whether I'd want to adopt as a single person, but I had recently decided, yeah, even if I never get married, I still probably will want to adopt. And, but I, in my mind, I thought that's a long time away though. Mm -hmm. But I, so I saw my wife's profile. She was the same age I was. We're both 23. We're actually born three days apart and she was adopting. And I thought like, Hey, Here's my someone my age who's already adopting. That's interesting. And I had no ulterior motive, nothing. I purely messaged her, curious. I was like, hey, I'm really interested in adoption. And you're like, you're my same age and you're already adopting. Can you just tell me how that came about? I'd like to know. Like, I'm really interested. And at the time, and, and now speaking for my wife, she was really attracted to my photo. I had dreadlocks and she thought that was the coolest thing. And... Uh, and so she was kind of excited that I messaged her, but then she was really disappointed that it was very platonic. Like I was just asking about like adoption. <laughs> and uh, so I sent that message. Over the next three days, we messaged a lot. Like we've since collated the messages and put them into like a Word document. It's like 72, 72 pages. Holy like, snap, plus, man. Like, writing back and forth in, the, in three days. So from when I first saw her profile to writing her in three days we wrote 72 pages back and forth to each other and at the end of those three days I said so listen here's the deal my plan is to marry you and now I'm just going to use our future time to try to convince you to say yes when before I ask and so she was down for that and uh, <laughs> then we started um, started talking about you know uh, well we started talking about a lot of things like you know distance really helped I, I think distance is a great thing because you can go mini golfing with someone and not talk about anything important. Like if you're distance, all you can do is talk. Now you, there's plenty of not important stuff you can talk about, but we were very intentional and we actively decided like, let's really get to know each other. We, we found a list of questions and, and things like that. And we just kind of went through them. We just had really substantive discussions. And, um, so I had a break coming up in February. So this was like six weeks after we first started talking. And within a week, we had planned, like I knew about the break. Within a week of that first message I sent to her, we had planned for me to come visit Uganda and propose. I mean, like that was pretty much decided within a week of us talking. We were already 
And I said, I'm going to fly to Uganda and I'll propose to you in person. And then I'll fly back and finish my semester and then maybe we'll get married in the summer. So I flew there in February and I got there and I was only planning to be there 10 days. And I'm a really light traveler. I'm a very nervous traveler. That's why I'm a light traveler. The more I bring, the more there is to worry about. So I brought like two shirts and like one bag. I didn't like check a bag. I just had of my own stuff. I, I, I did check a bag. But I, I had like three books that I was reading for school. And that was it. Like a pair of pants and like three shirts and like three books. But so I got there. And one thing led to another. I proposed like right at the airport. I proposed before we had even. I'm so pure. I didn't even hold my hand's wife before I proposed to her. That's. That's that's my first level. That's what I always say. Like before I even touched her in person for the first time, I proposed like right out the airport, right when I walked out of the gate when she was picking me up. And which was funny because I got down on one knee and I had like a long speech that I had written on the airplane. And like the whole time my wife's like, just like get up because it's Uganda and my plane was from Egypt. Like I had stopped in Egypt. And so like it's all Ugandan and Arab men getting off the plane and they're all like, what what you what you hope if you're doing like a public proposal like people like smiling or like clapping or it was just a bunch of men standing around us with their arms crossed frowning because they were so upset that I was kneeling to a woman. Ooh yeah, I guess <laughs> cultural differences, right? <laughs> it's it it hilarious, but and my wife was so embarrassed and she had specifically told me I was not allowed to propose at the airport, but I did anyway. So. And then some things happened, and I just decided, hey, listen, I'm not going to leave you here. I'm not going to leave you here. I'm not going to leave you here to, to finish out this adoption. Or, well, not finish. We had planned for me to move there in the summer, get married, and we'd finish the adoption. And so I'm not going to leave you guys here. So I decided to stay. And we got married. Uh, I arrived there February 10th, and we got met, married February 18th. And so that was about eight weeks after we had sent the first message. So oh I'm, I, gosh. I, I met, we were, we were married within two months of meeting each other and we were married within eight, seven days of meeting each other in person for the first time. That's so wild, but so, also crazy cool that, you know, you've had like, not that I would ever expect that you wouldn't like last or anything like that, but I have seen, uh, you know, relationships that have developed over a longer period of time that have fallen apart in a much, at a much quicker rate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so to, to only have like, I've known each other for eight weeks and to have been married after like eight days of knowing, like seeing each other to, to really get to know someone, you know, in person is it's incredible just to, to see how you know you guys have done that since you know yeah and you know i i joke because i hit like four out of like the five top or i don't know what the top stressors are but you know like the top life stressors you know i i got married i became a parent same yeah. day changed cultures same day <laughs> changed jobs stopped doing what i was doing so i did all that in like one day like boom right easy, easy. but uh you know it it comes down to my wife and i have a very different philosophy than um the general uh, western culture when it comes to dating and relationships mm-hmm. and then even a e- even as like very conservative christians we have a different way of viewing things we i think right. and so you know i and i'm happy to 
to to say that, like I said, it's kind of a soapbox for me, just because I feel like, hey, everyone else gets the alternative point of view all the time. We might as well hear mine. I'm I'm not going to convince anyone, but we like really, really strongly. I mean, like everyone says this, but we really strongly, like in our minds, romance can come after, like. Yeah. It, what what's the order in a movie? It's the romance, romance then marriage. You'll never right. see the marriage in the movie though, right? It's you gotta fall in love and then you know it's that passion is the undergirding, right? That passion, that uh, that spark, that is what is the foundation of a relationship. If that's there, that's when you get married. And we're like, no, 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 no. You have to have something foundational and then you can have passion. Then you can have that because that's the fluctuation. Right. C.S. Lewis right. said that you're not always in love. You'd be exhausted if you were always in love. Like, right. yeah. So uh, we very strongly believe that the foundation, the ideal foundation, and it almost never works out like this, but the ideal foundation is covenant commitment, is the marriage, is to actually be married. That's a great foundation to have romance. Right. And the other way around to, to get married based on a romance we think is probably not great. Even though that's the way, like, 99% of, like, Western civilization does that. Right. I mean, romanticism, you see life a totally different way, and you can easily become disillusioned uh, before, so we, yeah. We tried. Now, it was hard, and I know we, we failed in some parts, but we tried very hard not to fall in love until after we were married. We self-consciously said, this is a decision we can make without being in love. And then once you're... Once, once you have a commitment, like when you take that commitment seriously, I mean, I mean, I know people in our world don't hide divorce rate, but we both got to know each other on, on uh, a sh- not a romantic level, but on a value level. And when we both understood, like we are people who are committed to this covenant that we're making, we're committed to this, to the vows that we will make if we get married. That's a wonderful foundation to then. Uh, fall in love and have romance and get excited because you have this solid foundation where like I'm not worried if I do a little something and piss you off that it's over because we've right. already made a commitment to be together forever right right it's like and so it's like a really safe marriage is a really safe environment to fall in love is our is the way we say it whereas falling in love outside of marriage is a very potentially painful and dangerous environment right and like like we joke about like my wife and I is like oh we we would love an arranged marriage. We just arranged it. Our like we have an arranged marriage. We just did the arranging. Yeah, it's it's kind of true though. You, it that has to be the most kind of Western way of arranging a marriage is what you did, and it's it's cool to see that it's working, and it's cool to see your guys' mentality when looking at it, and like just your philosophy of marriage because you are correct. It is not. Uh, a normal one and it's not one that or I shouldn't say normal but you know what I mean it's not the it's not the norm within western society uh and it's you know, like what it's great though I, I think that it if it's working then you know what, like what's the yeah what's the ultimate evil in like a romance movie it's an arranged marriage but right. the fact of the matter is there have been happy arranged marriages for thousands of years Absolutely. that but like our our media has turned that into like that's that most absolute evil of like that's it, like the, it, it the enemy of romance the, uh, the, the independence of one's you know desires yeah, yeah it's the worst thing that could happen to a person but yeah thanks uh, Shakespeare. We, think, we just think it's it's a valid option basically but uh we like my wife and i are absolute best friends like yeah i i can totally survive without ever hanging out with anyone 
else for the rest of my life. Like, I, right. I, I, I love my wife. We, we, it also happened to work out. I mean, these weren't essentials for us, but we have very, very similar tastes in a lot of things. So, like, we can sit and veg on the same Netflix by and large. Like, we have, we have different, we have different tastes, but like eighty yeah. percent of our tastes overlap. You know, which, like, which is so, good, man. You, you need that, right? You need to have that solidarity uh, in order to. I mean, if you're planning on being with this person for the next, you know. 60 70 years depending on you know how technology develops and how long you end up surviving uh you know it you got to make sure that you have something in common or else what the heck are you gonna do you know yeah and we're both we both have a very very high view of children we have three kids so our oldest is adopted yeah. we finished her adoption uh i so I, like i said i had planned to be in uganda for 10 days i ended up being there under just under two years um just trying to finish that adoption and come home. Like the whole time, we thought we'd be home in like two months. Like actively trying to come home for yeah. two years. But uh, so, but then we had another. Our first biological daughter was born in Uganda. Okay, and let then, me ask you something real quick about that. Now, is your daughter then a Ugandan citizen? She could claim it if she wanted to. But we she's we, we didn't just go as an through. American. We didn't go through any process to okay. get. She has a Uganda birth certificate. She can claim it if she wanted to, but we. She has no like official, you know, right. Uganda documents apart from that birth certificate. Like she doesn't have a passport or like her passport's an American one, and like okay. we did that all at the American embassy there. For sure. But like if she grew up and she wanted to, she could all do it. To, yeah. Assuming, okay. assuming we haven't lost that, which we probably will have. I don't know. <laughs> but then you also no, my have. Wife, my wife, Sorry, I was just going to say, you also have a son who was then born in America? My son was born in America, yes. Okay. He was, he's two years old now. Uh, we've been back for four years now, about. Yeah. Or or the begin. this is the begin. No, so like three years and some change. This is the beginning of our fourth year now back. My son was born in America, so he's two years old. Okay. So let me ask you this, because this is something, even as we've talked through this, I, I never really thought about this, but you are a very ambitious human being. Um, you know, even from when you said your ambition when it came to magic, uh, I know that you are very academically ambitious, and we could probably sit here for another hour and discuss academia and why you are the way you are when it comes to academics. Um but, you know, you finished a four-year degree in three years because you just wanted to get it done that much faster. Um, you then went off not just to any seminary, but one of the more prestigious ones in North America. Uh, and then when it came to your, you know, your family, um, you were ambitious in the sense of, you know, like you just said, you, within eight weeks, Jeremiah, this is not a a regular thing but it is something that i find is very fascinating with you is your ambition uh in life and do you my question with this is then do you see that same ambition um within your kids or uh within one or all three or anything like that like do you see this this ambitious mentality um so that that's really interesting and it's very interesting the way uh the way you framed it, because like I would never think to call myself ambitious at all. And like I said, I'm like the most boring person. With my wife and I are so boring, but we really are. Oh, but, I, I understand <laughs> that. But I'm saying, 
And I would say you're crazy yeah. if you think you're boring. No, so. I'm not disputing the ambition. I just I would never think to phrase it right. that way. And like, and so, but it's the what you said that was compelling to me is when you you put it in family terms. Because usually when you think of ambition, you think of like professional development right. and like career. But I have specifically eschewed and and abandoned quite a lot of what I otherwise could have accomplished in academia because I love hanging out with my kids way more. Absolutely. Like, like I could do way, way more, you know, I, for doing what I'm doing, I'm supposed to be publishing papers. I'm supposed to be going to conferences. I don't do any of that because I seriously would way rather play with the foams lightsabers that I made for my kids outside than I would write a paper. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why like, I don't think of myself as ambitious, but then you to like frame it like in family life. Oh yeah, there's ambition in that sphere too. So I, I could see, um, but like as far as seeing it in my kids, man, I could talk about my kids forever. They're the coolest people on the planet. And as a parent, you, you, uh, you really spend time. I don't know if every parent does, but my wife and I are very analytical and we spend time thinking about our children. Like we spend time thinking about their strengths and their weaknesses. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's my oldest, my adopted daughter, mm -hmm. she is uh i guess in those terms probably the least ambitious of my children okay. she has a very very uh strong perfectionist attitude mm -hmm. which kind of like hampers the ambition cuz she doesn't want to do anything that she can't do perfect you right. know like the when she first started to learn how to read like she literally spent an hour crying because she couldn't read right. you know it's like like sound this out and she like you know she's learning it's like this is your first day but she's crying because she can't do it um and so that actually like kind of prevents her from pursuing things because she's afraid to in a lot right. of in a lot of things yeah. and uh, she's very very shy and so that also uh, hinders so in in one sense i would say she's probably uh the least ambitious the others it's a little bit harder since they're younger my daughter is three and my son is two uh, she's turning four, though. She'll be four very soon. And uh, they're both, like, I hate to say it, but, like, they're both very smart. Um, and, like, every, <laughs> like every, every parent thinks their kid's, kid is a genius. Your, I guess your middle child, you know, for those that obviously don't know Jeremiah, um, he loves to share stories from his home life on social media. And I can say... You know, not just because you and I are talking, but um, they're hands down some of the highlights to my day when you post a new one uh, <laughs> of your kids, and especially your middle daughter, who she just has this this sass to her and this independence that is remarkable to see in a in a child. Where I just I always think of you as very um, very proper, very you know well thought before you speak. I've never heard you speak off the cuff with, you know, ignorance or foolishness. And so I just always assume that your kids will be just like you are. And yet <laughs> I feel like your your middle child is going to give you a run for your money because oh man, she just, you know, she has just a personality about her. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just would assume that that. Uh... She is a special kind of crazy. And she's very smart. Now you you are exactly right. I am very careful with my words, and I'm very careful. I'm a very reserved person because I usually don't want to speak without having thought through. But on the other, that's like 
that's when conversation is substantive. I tend to be crazy with like my kids or when I'm just like I I can really be a, a goof off saying you know yeah. whatever comes to my head when it comes to play with my kids. But my yeah my middle daughter is is very is insanely bright even more so than than my son and everyone everyone tells us this doctors anyone who takes care of her they're always like she is so smart and she was like the easiest baby in the world she was like the nicest calmest like our plane ride back from america you know like 11 hours and everyone on the plane was like she's so well behaved and then like at 11 months or so like a flip switch (laughs) and she just went she just went berserk and like she's like the the story I always tell about her is one time at church, I was meeting a family, and it was like their third week, but they were new, but I was just meeting them, and I was introducing myself. I was like, this is, I'm Jeremiah, this is my wife, this is my oldest daughter, this is my new son. I was like, we have another daughter somewhere. Um, I have no idea. She's the most energetic kid in church. And they're like, oh, the little blonde. Yeah, we know her. <laughs> <laughs> like, she she just, she's like, she's like insane. She has more energy than I've ever seen, and she's crazy, and assertive and she's very smart which yeah. causes problems you know right, right. like <laughs> she and i've had very deep conversations you know sometimes we'll talk like she and i have had like legitimate you know 45 minute theological conversations I mean, she's three but she'll be asking me like you know does god cause all our pain you know like then why like what does it mean to believe in god like what is saving faith like she's asked me questions like that wow. and but uh she uh yeah, she's she is a handful. Like recently, I mean, this this was this was a while ago actually, but my wife was trying to decide, you know, like, oh, what should we do, you know, like school-wise for her? Like obviously we're not going to do anything too intense, but maybe you know, like a little preschool thing. So we were trying to catalog what she knew. Yeah. And you know, like, oh, she knows her colors, you know, she knows animals and then you know, like she knows shapes and my or my wife said, I don't think she knows shapes yet. And I was like, Hold on. I know like we've never sat down and like talked shapes with her, yeah. but I'm pretty sure she's probably like learned shapes by osmosis at this point. So I called her in. I was like, Hey, Ketsy, come here. And so I started drawing on the whiteboard, I drew a square. I was like, What's that? And she's like, That's a square. And I was like, What's that? And she's like, That's a circle. I was like, What's that? Like, that's a triangle. It's like, What's that? That's a diamond. I thought I'd get her with oval. I really did. I was like, what's that? And she's like, that's an oval. And I was like, all right, that's all. I just wanted to see if you knew your shapes. You can go. And she's like, what about a parallelogram? <laughs> just these, oh, man, that's so great. See, and and that's exactly it. I think what I've learned so much through all these conversations with friends, because um, I'm trying to think, outside of one conversation, you know, uh, everyone I've I've had these, you know, podcasts with so far have had kids and, um, and it's so fascinating to see, you know, not only does everyone pride themselves in their families, but, you know, to hear about how their kids have developed and, and the fascination that parents find from what their own children teach them, uh, is always like, it's one of my favorite things. And so, yeah, man, I, I think you're doing life right. Um, <laughs> I think you're, you know, again, I think, you know, I have always found you fascinating. Uh, I could never tell anyone how we became friends because I can't remember when we really, you know, started hanging out. I know it was my last year at Prairie and that uh, we had a few classes together and we just started like, uh, 
going going to the dining hall together for dinner because I remember we had a yeah. class that ran till like five thirty. Yep. And I, uh, I don't remember when we first started hanging out either. I remember the first time you talked to me. At least I I have a really early memory was the the freshman upperclassman football game. Oh yes. You, you tackled me. And then afterwards, like in the dining hall in line, you came up and you're like, hey, little buddy, like, sorry about that. I hope you're okay. <laughs> and like, that was like the first thing you ever said to me in my memory. Yeah. See, and I still remember you getting in the way and I, I felt bad afterwards because I smashed into the ground. Um, you know, for those that are just listening, Jeremiah isn't exactly what we call, you know, the size of a linebacker. Uh, you know, are, you're you're hovering somewhere around. Uh, are you? You're shorter than six feet, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, five and, five ten. Yeah, and so not not exactly. You know, the largest man I've ever come to know, but uh, I cannot applaud your courage for getting in front of me. Who I'm sure, for those that know, I look like a refrigerator with legs, and so <laughs> I. Uh, yeah, I do apologize if you have any CTE going on inside your brain from uh, from that game. <laughs> but uh, I don't, I don't remember feeling like it was a particularly big accomplishment. But you were like, "Good job." <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, you know, I am, I'm thankful that our friendship has developed the way it has. Uh, I think by the time I got to my fourth year in college, I was ready to finally be. A mature human and I'm thankful that I met someone like you who you know has maturity vast beyond mine um, and uh, and and I appreciate it for what it is you know you were you were definitely not like a lot of my other friends at that time and still to this day you know you hold different interests and again hence why we're doing this this podcast um, because I do find you yourself very fascinating and very uh i i just i've always appreciated you and again you know we wouldn't be having this conversation if i didn't you know try to share who you were with other people that have no idea who you are my parents still ask about you and refer to you as the asian fellow with the dreadlocks uh <laughs> you know and um you know they and so, yeah, you know, sharing, even I'll never forget when I told my mom uh, about, you know, how you met your wife and got married all within, you know, a short period of time. She's like, what? People do that? Like, she just couldn't believe uh, <laughs> the fact that you had moved to Africa and had gotten married uh, so quickly. But, you know, it's it's what makes you unique. It's what makes you uh, special in my life. And um and I love the fact that we, when was the last time we talked? Like, we haven't talked forever. And, Local talking, yeah, it's been a long time. You know, and I love the fact that we're able to pick this up in 2018, 17, just kidding. Uh, and we're able just to, like, sit and, and, and BS a little bit and uh, and have a good time, you know? Yeah. I don't think I've actually talked to you or heard your voice since I left Prairie, so that would be five years. Yeah, man, and it's and it's good, dude. It's good. It's it's satisfying to be able to have these conversations, and uh, and I always appreciate you know everything you're doing, and um, and I hope that you know maybe we can have you on on our regular podcast at some point, and, and we'll we'll chat about something. I guarantee everything we just discussed, Tarek will be enamored by, especially the magic stuff. That guy loves anything. 
like that. But uh, I can't can't thank you enough for joining us for this, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Like I said, I I am honored that uh, you find me uh, interesting at all. <laughs> I really, I'm I'm pretty boring. You see, and I disagree with you, sir. I disagree. So that is the life of Jeremiah Zuo. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me on. <laughs>